from WCPE Radio in Waterbury. Welcome to the Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thanks for joining us. It's Wednesday, November 22nd. And today on the program, John F. Kennedy. 60 years ago today in Dallas, Texas, a moment that changed history and still defines our world in many, many ways. The President of the United States murdered in broad daylight. Lee Harvey Oswald was charged with the crime, but all these years later, such so much of the country believes that the killing was part of some nefarious plot or a conspiracy. We'll discuss the assassination and its 60-year aftermath with the nation's leading journalist on the subject. Then at 10 a.m., a proposal to raise the income tax on wealthy Vermonters. A coalition of groups has come together to urge the legislature to raise taxes on the wealthy to pay for critical programs like flood recovery and housing. This happens every year and usually dies in the legislature without much fanfare. But this year feels different. We'll get into why. As always, we welcome your calls. The number is 244-1777, and the email is vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Before we get into it, I wanted to remind everyone that if you would like to send condolences, cards, or whatever to the family of WDEV owner, the late Ken Squire, you can do that by sending them to us right here at the station in Waterbury. Just write on an envelope or the car, WDEV, P.O. Box 550, Waterbury, Vermont, 05676. Or just send it to 9 Stowe Street, Waterbury, Vermont, same zip code, 05676. And we'll make sure that all cards and everything else get to the family. Thanks, all of you, for your uh, well wishes uh, for Ken and the family. And first, if you are under the age of 50, you don't really know. And if you're over 60, you know. If you're over 70, it just might be, next to the Vietnam War, the defining moment of your life. It certainly is now one of the defining moments of American history. We talk about it easily now all this time later, but it is worth saying it out loud. 60 years ago, an American president was murdered, gunned down in broad daylight in a moving car in front of his wife and the Secret Service. A few days later, the man charged with the murder, Lee Harvey Oswald, was gunned down in a Dallas police station on live television. Shadowy nightclub owner Jack Ruby is charged with that crime. Oswald was charged with the assassination of Kennedy, but he denied responsibility for the killing, claiming that he was a patsy for others. Two days later, Oswald was fatally shot by local nightclub owner Jack Ruby on live television in the basement of the Dallas police headquarters. Jack Ruby, originally known as Jacob Rubenstein, operated strip joints and dance halls in Dallas and had minor connections to organized crime. In March 64 of 1964, he was found guilty and sentenced to death for killing Oswald, but he died of cancer in 1967 before a second trial. New President Lyndon Johnson set up the Warren Commission, also known as the President's Commission on the Assassination of President. Welcome back. We have set the table for our discussion of the Kennedy assassination 60 years ago. And now, 
We discussed with the country's foremost expert on the subject this horrific event that changed American history 60 years ago. Jefferson Morley is a Washington, D.C.-based writer and journalist who is the most credible authority on the Kennedy assassination. He is the editor of the blog JFK Facts and the author of The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Asus Angleton. He has sued the CIA for records related to the Kennedy assassination. I'm getting a message that all circuits are busy. I can't get through. Related to the Kennedy assassination and questions about why the CIA continues to hide relevant records from the public despite orders from Congress and the president. So uh, I understand we're having a little bit of a problem uh, bringing Jeff Morley on the program. So if that is the case, uh, I'm just going to send him a text in mo- with modern technology. And we'll see if we can raise him on the show. And uh, until then, I'm going to ask a series of questions and invite your calls on this 60th anniversary of this assassination. Uh, There's Jeff on the other line. What goes through your mind on this 60th anniversary about the Kennedy assassination? Where were you when this happened? What were you thinking? Is there an event that was more seminal in U.S. in, in U.S. history? Uh, I, as I said in my essay, I I, uh, I remember seeing my mother uh, crying in front of the TV. I, I was all of four years old. Um, JFK had had a notoriously bad relationship with the around the issue of Cuba and Castro and Fidel Castro in the wake of the Bay of Pigs invasion. I hope is that we have Jefferson Morley with us on the show. Are you there? I am here. <laughs> well, welcome and uh, welcome to live radio. And we appreciate uh-huh. you coming on. I. I, I have introduced you already, and I and I spent the uh, I did a small a short essay at the beginning of the show uh, talking about the 60th anniversary, uh, the Warren Commission, and the and the fact that uh, President Kennedy actually uh, the day before the election in 1960 came to the airport in Burlington, Vermont, and spoke to 10,000 people, uh, and then the next day. Uh, Flew to Dallas, so we we have set the table, and 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 introduced you. I guess my first question, Jeff Morley, is what goes through your mind on the 60th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination? What's the first thing you think about? Just w- what a turning point it was, and, and this has even become clearer to me in the last you know ten years. You know, the there was an inflection point in the U.S. role in the world. And uh, Kennedy was trying to go one direction, and that the direction he was trying to go, we can now see, was closed off by his assassination. And, you know, a huge opportunity was lost. And this system that we live under now of, you know, seemingly forever wars, you know, the the country has been very much at war over the last 60 years. Um, Not always, but, uh, but most of the time. 
And I think that now can be traced back to Kennedy's assassination. It didn't have to be that way. Um, Kennedy had another idea. Now, you know, would he have, you know, taken us another direction? Of course, we don't know. We can't be sure. But there was a choice there that has never been pursued since. That uh, That is a real Pandora's box, and I wonder if we could put it to the side just for a moment, uh, because, boy, there's a lot of profound stuff there. Um, but before we get to that, one of the most, in your mind, you've been writing about this and researching it for years, um, and I think it's really important that we point out that you are a journalist and a writer, uh, and that you're not, you know, it, we live in a world now of conspiracy theories, and People can talk about their conspiracies all they want, but your work is based on documents and research. And I wonder if you could describe uh, the work that you've been doing in the past, oh, you know, three, four, five years and, and what it centers around. So I run a, a, a subscription newsletter called JFK Facts, which is on Substack. And that's where I report on new developments in the JFK story. I come to the JFK story from writing three books about the CIA, um, not about the Kennedy assassination, but about three leading personalities in the CIA uh, in its first 25 years. Um, Winston Scott, the chief of station in Mexico City, James Angleton, the chief of counterintelligence, and Dick Helms, the deputy and the director of the CIA. Three very important men, three men who are also involved in the JFK story. But my, my understanding of the story derives from understanding how the assassination of the president looked in the eyes of the CIA. I don't have a theory because who cares what Morley's theory is? He's just another guy. What the people inside the CIA thought about Kennedy's assassination, that's really interesting. And that's the foundation of my work. And the the Congress of the United States uh, passed a law requiring the CIA to re to disclose over time all the documents uh, related to the assassination. And President yeah. Biden recently ordered the, those documents uh, released. And yet, as you as you've pointed out in your writing, uh, much of those documents have still not been released. Can you take us through that? Yeah, so in 1992, Congress passed the JFK Records Act. Um, it's a very strong open government law that required all government agencies to locate any records related to the assassination, to review them, and to release them. And so that process started in the 1990s and continues to this day. And in that process, we have learned a tremendous amount about the assassination. And people say, oh, well, you know, there's no smoking gun in there. That is true, but there's a lot of highly significant information in there that further undermines the official story and makes it likely that there's another explanation for Kennedy's assassination. So that material has been coming into the record, um, and it was supposed to all be released within 25 years. So the law was passed in 1992. Everything was supposed to be released in October 2017. So at that time, the CIA came 
CIA and FBI went to President Trump and said, we can't release. There's lots of stuff we, we still cannot release. And so Trump gave them what they wanted. He gave them four more years of secrecy around a body of records that's probably about 15,000 records that still contain redactions. So a significant body. And Trump said, we'll revisit this issue in four years. So the decision came to Biden in October 2021. Uh, what do we do with these records? CIA came and said we couldn't possibly release all these records. So Biden gave them another year um, until early last year. And then this past summer, he issued his final order, what he described as his final order on JFK files. Well, when the dust had cleared... There are still 3,648 U.S. government documents that have been officially described as related to the assassination that still contain redactions. Now, is there a smoking gun in there? I mean, who knows? The law says that all that stuff should be made public. That's the first point. Second point is there's probably a lot of trivial material in there. Overclassification is rife in government circles. But there is a core of information in there that is important, and that's what they're hiding. That's what they're still sitting on and saying we couldn't possibly release this because it would harm national security. I don't think it would harm national security. It would be highly embarrassing and detrimental to the CIA's reputation, but it's not going to be harmful to national security in terms of safety of the American people. So we still have this core of secrecy around the JFK story. Years and as later. you point, and and as you point out, uh, as when we've talked in the past, we really don't. I mean, it's it's almost it's it's hard to it's so it's such a complicated story with so many tentacles that it's really hard to simplify it so that you can have a have a clear discussion about it. But as I said in my essay in the beginning. This was an American president murdered in broad daylight in a moving car in the middle of the day in Dallas, Texas, uh, in front of his wife and the Secret Service. It's it's we kind of gloss over that. But uh, the, the 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 hugeness of, of the event, uh, right. you know, do you ever sort of catch yourself and take yourself back and say, wow, what an incredible event to happen in a in a democracy like the United States. Yeah, no, no. I mean, the story does not lose its power to astonish. And, yeah. and, and as I, you know, delved into and, you know, learned from new records that came out this year, I'm, I'm, I'm still, you know, getting another, layer of complexity and understanding how this, you know, how this situation, how this came to pass. Um, and, you know, and it's a story that's buried very deeply. I mean, that core of secrecy is there. And the, you know, the, the, the government does not want to surrender this information because it's very detrimental to, to the CIA's reputation. Uh, Jeff, what what is the CIA hiding? I, I, you said it once, but I, I think it bears repeating. There's the there's documents yeah, I, that are I, embarrassing, I, and there's documents yeah. that that uh, that are boring. But what what are the key questions here that we need answered? I my reading of the evidence, what's been made public, what's been still secret, and conversations with CIA people. 
there was authorized CIA operational activity around Lee Harvey Oswald while President Kennedy was alive. There was a conscious decision of specific CIA officials to use Oswald for some intelligence purpose. And what that purpose was is being kept secret. And who those men, who those men were is being kept secret. But that's the core of it. Now, just because there was a CIA operation involving Oswald doesn't mean that that's a CIA assassination conspiracy, right? There could be some other explanation right. for it. But whatever it is, the fact that they haven't disclosed it, is high, that's the thing that's highly embarrassing. If there's an innocent explanation for this, why didn't you say it from the start? You know, why didn't you disclose this from the start? So, you know, that's their problem is there probably isn't an innocent explanation for this undisclosed interest in Oswald. So that's where I think the story is going. Uh, An email just popped into my inbox uh, from the presidential campaign of Robert Kennedy Jr., who has uh, said that the CIA is complicit in his uncle's assassination. And he he calls on President Biden to release the the remaining documents. Is there significance? Is there significance to that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s kind of his belief about his uncle's assassination. It's not it's not something he talks about all the time. He, he, you know, he brings it up, but but it is kind of a key to his platform or his positioning. You know, of, you know what his message is, and. You know, polls show that's quite a popular position. So he's got he's got the wind of public opinion at his back on that one, you know, as opposed to some other things that he said about COVID or vaccines where, you know, he's got a lot of blowback on the JFK story. You know, he's he's well positioned. So I think his candidacy keeps the JFK story in the news cycle. Um, you know, I think that his conspiracy theories about other things, um, you know, make people less likely to believe him on JFK. Um, so that's what I think about Bobby Kennedy Jr. I, I saw him. Uh, we've got a minute left before our first break, but I, I saw him say that, that one of the first things he's, he would do as president is to reform the CIA. That must send shivers down the spine of uh of the folks in Langley. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, there's one of the documents that is still marred by secrecy is a plan that President Kennedy considered about reorganizing the CIA. And the CIA is now keeping that information off out of public view. So it's almost like they've censored a, you know, a policy paper. How do you reorganize the CIA? And the CIA says, you're not allowed to see that. And, and so in the document, there's a page missing, Kevin, a page and a half of blank space where we don't get to know about this proposal to reorganize the CIA and why somebody, why President Kennedy thought it might be a good idea. That's real power. Wow. You know, that, that's like, that's real power. Yeah. Uh, 
Jeff Morley, I, I wonder if you could take us through, again, I, as I said earlier, this, comp, this story gets so complicated, but after the assassination, Lyndon B. Johnson becomes president and he prevails upon uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren to uh, head the Warren Commission to investigate the assassination and write a report. Can you take us through the Warren Commission and what it came up with? So, yeah, the important thing to understand is on Sunday morning, the president is killed on Friday noon. Um, uh, Oswald is killed on Sunday morning. Later that day, Lyndon Johnson talks with Deputy Attorney General Nicholas Katzenbach, and Katzenbach writes a memo saying, we have to convince the public that Oswald acted alone and he had no co-conspirators. Okay. On that same day, November uh, 24th, J. Edgar Hoover says very much the same thing to one of his aides. We have to convince the public that Oswald is the real assassin. It's a very interesting phrase. Oswald is the real assassin. So both the new president and the director of the FBI, the commander-in-chief and the nation's top law enforcement officer, decided two days after the assassination, before the investigation had barely begun, that the, the suspected assassin, who was dead, was the only man involved. And so um, Congress was going to investigate. The Dallas police were going to investigate. And so Johnson was trying to head off all of that. And so he decided to create a high-level commission that would investigate and, and prevent all the other investigations. And he wanted Earl Warren to head it. The chief justice. He was the kind of a liberal icon of the day. You know, his court had handed down Brown versus Board of Education, the Miranda Reef. So a liberal icon. And Johnson really wanted, and he told Johnson, you have to do this because if you don't do this, we could have a war that will kill 40 million people. Earl Warren didn't want to head that commission. He thought it was totally inappropriate um, for a chief justice to be uh, operating outside the court system. And um, But Johnson prevailed on him. So right from the start, the agenda of the Warren Commission was, one, to find that Oswald did it alone, and two, to keep the peace. So fact-finding and adjudicating guilt were like the third priority of the Warren Commission. It wasn't one of the top two priorities. First priority, find that this one man did it alone. Second priority, don't create problems for us internationally by blaming the Cubans or the Soviets um, or anybody else. And so that was the agenda that was set for the Warren Commission. So a couple of weeks after the assassination, the FBI issued its report on the, and said Oswald had acted alone. Um, because J. Edgar Hoover was widely mistrusted by Kennedy and the liberal part of the, the electorate, um, that was not going to be sufficient. And Johnson knew that. That's why he needed a Warren commission so that he could sell this conclusion to the whole public. So um, the FBI rubber stamps what LBJ and Hoover want. The Warren Commission rubber stamps the FBI, and the American people are told, look, this one guy did it, and then another guy killed him. You know, sounds unlikely, but that's what happened. Sorry. Time to move on. You know, and a lot of people decided, yeah, you know, time to move on. What can we do about it? But when you go back and you look at it over time, the idea that that story that Hoover and LBJ came up with before the investigation had even begun, it's just not true. 
it's, it's not supported forensically, logically, factually. So something else was going on, and we still don't know. Uh, that that's just you know to hear that again. Uh, I mean, is is still shocking when I hear it. Uh, you know. Yeah, and so if and if, so you know, there is this incredulity about it. It's like, wow, <laughs> you know, that's what right. happened, and that's the that's the unfortunate thing that we've been handed is, you know, and and the way it's been framed is, you know, you have to believe this, and if you don't believe it, you're nuts. And we're not going to listen to you, you know. And so, so you know, the the, the government and the ma- major media organizations have institutionalized their blindness. They they don't want to see the new information, so they don't cover it. That and and the story never changes. But you know, the public desire for a better explanation never goes away. We're all we're, we're always being told it's going to go away because only crazy people believe it, but then it never goes away, right? So that's the problem that the, you know, the the government finds itself in. And, you know, Joe Biden, when he said, you know, this is my final order, you know, you could almost see him, you know, like, I got to get this, take this away from me. I don't want to deal with this anymore. I don't want to think about this, you know? So of course the government doesn't want to think about it. It's highly embarrassing. And, you know, a, a real indictment of the political system uh, so because of all of that, it, it remains a live issue and somebody like RFK Jr. can tap into it. And, and after the Warren Commission, uh, I can't think of any, any public commission, government commission that is, has less credibility than the Warren Commission all these years later. Uh, the, the, and because of the, those doubts, the Congress creates a select committee in the House on assassination and, and yeah. takes another look at this. What did they find? So... In the mid-1970s, there was a series of revelations really starting with the Watergate affair and and revelations about how the CIA had assisted the Watergate, you know, the White House burglars. Um, And that led to uh, revelations about domestic spying, about mind control, about foreign assassination plots. And that's when Congress started to investigate uh, the CIA for the first time. And after the release of the Zabruder film, the home movie of Kennedy's assassination taken by a bystander, you know, there was a sort of overwhelming demand for a new investigation because so much had been withheld and not known to the public at the time of the Warren Commission. So the Warren Commission's credibility plummeted, and to establish the credibility of the government, Congress created the House Select Committee on Assassinations to look at the assassination of JFK and Martin Luther King. That investigation uh, continued through 1978 and came to the conclusion that President Kennedy, in all likelihood, in all probability, I think was the phrase, had been assassinated by a conspiracy whose participants could not be identified. So that was the second official investigation came to a very different conclusion than the first. Now, that wasn't very satisfactory to people, but what do you mean? You can't you can't tell us who was involved? But that was what the committee said. So so the government itself has come to different conclusions about the crime. Uh I'm, my my jaw just drops open as as we continue talking about this. Uh, 
And Jeff, uh, in our last segment here, I want to get back to what we, you talked about in the beginning. You you talk about President Kennedy going in a different direction than the generals and the CIA, and that that could be um, uh, the seed for what happened to him. Can you can you talk about that with regard to there was the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis, and even RFK Jr. Yeah. is saying that. Uh, that Kennedy issued an order to remove all military advisors from Vietnam before he was killed. Talk about what the president was thinking before he was assassinated. President Kennedy is, is, is a different president after the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962. Until that point, he is a kind of a conventional cold warrior, quite eloquent about standing up for the free world against communism, uh, considered you know uh, hawkish in, in many respects. But the experience of the Cuban Missile Crisis in which he and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev came close to presiding over a nuclear war that would have killed tens of millions of people that neither man wanted was a profound, disturbing experience for JFK. The country was very close to nuclear war. Bobby Kennedy thought the war would happen within 48 hours um, with catastrophic, unthinkable consequences. Kennedy had managed to escape that with a diplomatic solution at the last minute. And not only did he save the country from nuclear war, but he also enjoyed a tremendous uh, benefit in public public opinion. He shot up, uh, his approval ratings went way up. Um, and so the politics of peace became attractive to Kennedy in 1963. And he makes a series of decisions that shows that he wants to go in a different direction than his national security establishment, most notably in Cuba and in Vietnam. In Cuba, he uh, is exploring the possibility of restoring normal diplomatic relations with the Castro government in return for, you know, cutting relations with the Soviet Union. Kennedy was open to that, and he was he was approving the idea of emissaries going and talking to Castro's people and figuring out was there a possible deal. So, and that that diplomatic effort in 1963 was viewed with fear and horror by top people in the CIA and the Pentagon because it signaled that the U.S. might not overthrow Castro but would coexist with him. And that was unthinkable to people at the CIA and the Pentagon. And then on Vietnam, the same thing. Um, Kennedy's under pressure. He's given a, a lot of U.S. military aid to Vietnam. He's under pressure to escalate more because the South Vietnamese government is in crisis over the summer of 1963. Its public support is evaporating. The communist insurgency is gaining. And Kennedy is being pressured by his national security apparatus to step up the U.S. Uh, military presence to escalate. And Kennedy instead insists on, uh, in October 1963, a 1,000-man withdrawal. Um, not a significant withdrawal in terms of the 18,000 advisors who were there, but a clear signal of the direction Kennedy wanted to go. He wanted to start pulling out, and he wanted to withdraw completely by early 1965. So Vietnam and Cuba, Kennedy's pulling in a new direction, and then finally on arms control. 
1963, Kennedy pushes through a limited test ban treaty with the Soviet Union. The idea was if we if we can't if the two superpowers can't test their nuclear weapons, they'll be less likely to use them. And, uh, you know, and so it was kind of a symbolic measure. But again, deeply opposed by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, deeply and unanimously. But Kennedy used his new prestige as a peacemaker to prevail. And when the limited test ban treaty was approved in September 63, Kennedy said that was his proudest accomplishment as president. So Kennedy articulated a vision, what he called the strategy of P- for peace, at his uh, a famous speech at American University in June 1963. And, you know, he was going in a different direction. After his assassination, Cuba policy has not changed in 60 years. The United States has remained unremittingly hostile to the Cuban government. So the possibility of a rapprochement, which Kennedy was pursuing, was killed. It has never returned to the political agenda. And in Vietnam, Kennedy's reluctance to get involved is immediately reversed by Lyndon Johnson and a policy of escalation takes effect. So, you know, and we we go into the war in Vietnam that that Kennedy wanted to avoid. Um, and so that was a major turning point on those, you know, two of the biggest issues in U.S., three of the biggest issues in U.S. foreign policy in 1963. You know, and so there was no more serious arms control pursued until the 1970s. Um, uh, policy towards Cuba was frozen and the Vietnam War was escalated. So the consequences of Kennedy's assassination, the impact of Kennedy's assassination on U.S. foreign policy, is quite profound. I'll say. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jeff Morley, I, I have to ask, and, then, and again, there's there's such a difference between sort of your run-of-the-mill conspiracy theories uh, and, and the work that you do, which is serious journalism and research. Uh, who killed Kennedy? I mean, if, if we if Oswald was not the lone gunman, and it's so it's so sort of debunked at this point uh, with the lack of credibility of the Warren Commission. How do we think about and how do you think about trying to figure out uh, how this event happened? The preponderance of evidence tells us the president was killed by enemies in his own government. Okay. Uh, was that the CIA? I, it, not necessarily. CIA people, if that's what happened, CIA people were probably involved. But that doesn't mean it was a CIA plot. Um, the Joint Chiefs of Staff in 1963 was a much bigger, more powerful institution than the CIA in 1963. So um, as a power center, you have to consider, you know, what what their perspective on the president and 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 I think it's important for people to understand Kevin. Kennedy's policies weren't regarded as misguided or weak. They were regarded as a menace, an active threat to U.S. national security, creating an incentive to remove him, to remove the threat. Um, so now people say, well, oh, you know, how could they keep something secret for so long? People need to understand something about covert operations. And this was told to me by a very senior veteran CIA officer. The best, the most important covert operations 
are the ones that are tightly held. And something could be hugely significant, and the operation was only known to three or four or five people. And if the gunfire in Dealey Plaza was the result of a covert operation, it could be an operation that literally only three or four people actually knew how it worked. That's how covert operations are designed. So the president was killed by enemies in his own government, probably people in the CIA or the military. You know, we can talk about who that might be, but it's just speculation. So that based on the facts that we see, I would say that. And then I'd say one more thing, which is we do see now that there's a lot of CIA operational activity around Lee Harvey Oswald. We understand that much better than we did even 20 years ago. This guy was of high level interest over a long period of time. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean he acted at the behest of senior CIA officers? You know, who knows? You know, this is why the secrecy is such a, is so suspicious and so harmful, you know, uh, Because the questions are quite – the kind of questions that I'm talking about, was Oswald manipulated by the CIA? Given the factual record, that's a perfectly legitimate question. And interestingly enough, it's not a question that the CIA has a pat answer for, you know, where they put out a public statement and say, you know, this is true. They don't talk about this stuff because they know their position is very weak. In the minute we have left, uh, we we now have a new documentary. I think it's on Paramount Plus called What the Doctors Saw, which very is, uh, important. interviews with very them. important. So, okay, so this is this is credible and something you recommend that we watch more, more than credible. This is the most important JFK docu- documentary to come out in the past couple of years, and people need to watch this because this is seven medical professionals who treated the president's wounds on November twenty second. Um, tried to save his life and failed. Um, and uh, they are shown the autopsy photographs many years later from the president's autopsy, which took place later that day. And they all say that what they see in the autopsy photos is not what they observed of the president's wounds and that they all believe that the president was hit by gunfire from two different directions. Okay. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is seven medical professionals who went on to distinguished careers and they are quite emphatic that the president was attacked by two gunmen. So it's a very important documentary and I urge everybody to see it. It's not. We have to go. Jefferson Morley, the expert on the assassination 60 years later. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.